Hi, my name is Sergeant Vucetic and this is US Foreign Policy. Today we're going to be looking at exits from below and from within, that is the textbook chapters 5 and 6 respectively. So I propose that we begin in the year 1989, which for many at the time appeared to be one of those rare moments uh, that mark a decisive turning point in human history. So from the perspective of communist Central Eastern and Southeastern Europe, the year was basically a miracle. The region's suppressive one-party systems crumbled with hardly a drop of bloodshed, except in Romania, where dictators Nicolae and Elena Ceausescu were toppled and killed in a popular uprising. I watched it on TV as a, as a kid. The Soviet Union, uh, the region's lord and master since the end of the Second World War, did nothing. It was going through an exit from hegemony, as we talked about before. So now, at last, Yugoslavs, Czechs, Hungarians, Bulgarians, Poles, and other Easterners could be reunited with Britons, French, Germans, and other Westerners in their common European home, to use a retrospective phrase. Now, there was, of course, a darker side to 1989. On June 4th, uh, the day when Poland's patriotic trade union movement uh, Solidarność, or Solidarity, swept to an overwhelming victory over the Communist Party in a semi-free uh, election, uh, the Chinese armed forces massacred uh, crowds of student protesters on Beijing Tiananmen Square. China's ruling communists have never expressed remorse for the slaughter. Then came the wars uh, in the Caucasus, in Moldova, and of course in Yugoslavia, which is where I am from. So in 1989, I was living in Sarajevo, Bosnia. I wasn't really a kid. I was a student in grade six, of course. I was watching cable TV uh, mostly MTV, and playing a lot of basketball. Um, so, a good year. 1990 was less good. I was less happy. Yugoslavia got itself in a big constitutional crisis. It was simmering for many, many years, but 1990 was bad, uh, as it was trying to democratize. Uh, 1991 was terrible, partly because my high school was very hard, but mainly because my country started to fall apart completely. Croatia and Slovenia declared independence. Uh, the Serb-dominated Yugoslav army lashed out. Thousands were killed, and several refugees came to, to my high school. I remember this. The next year, 1992, the war came to Sarajevo, and I became a refugee myself. And yet, with all of this going on, the optimistic expectation of many Western leaders and opinion makers was that all of Europe, even uh, even China would pursue market-based modernization. This would then eventually bring so much social and economic progress that simply authoritarianism and petty-minded nationalism would yield to some form of liberal democracy, the end of history. Essentially, you, you've all heard of this. If you have not read Francis Fukuyama's piece, you've heard of it, I'm sure. The end of history. Um, 30 and more years on, 1989 appears in less rosy colors for everyone. And that's not just me, everyone. For you too. China's modernization has done nothing to soften the state's authoritarian features. Russia, which according to many appeared on a promised path to freedom in the Soviet Union's final years, is an autocratic kleptocracy, right? 
Uh, most countries in Central and Eastern Europe have been integrated in the, into the EU and NATO. Uh, so my country, Bosnia, hasn't. Uh, but the reason abounds in nationalists, nativists, and populists who have few values in common with the enlightened liberal revolutionaries of 1989. So even the traditionally narrowly defined West, I mentioned earlier Britons, French, Germans, and so on, well, their West looks like in deep trouble. President Donald Trump is turning the U.S. against its own democratic principles and internationalist outlook. Yes, we can debate those democratic principles uh, in the seminar room and so on, but you get my point. The EU struggles to control events within, on, and beyond its borders. Again, something that you know well about uh, by simply by following the news. And what's more, the Western financial and economic system is no longer de delivering on its promises to millions of citizens. So uh, the distribution uh, is not only uneven, it's crass, you could say, uh, in many places. And this is uh, causing uh, unrest, shall we say. And of course, there's the pandemic, which is accelerating all of these uh, trends, right? So... What all this means is that the United States and its allies are not the only significant source of interstate patronage and global governance, right? This is now, uh, this is now we're talking about the theme for the course. Uh, the liberal order is changing. Of course, there are illiberal centers of power, and they are offering perks uh, to those who are seeking them. So we discussed this last week. The U.S. no longer has patronage monopoly on the supply of public uh, club and private goods. Take a look at figure 5.1 on page 125. Well, that's history. Now, governments around the world can access emergency finance, development loans, or even broader political legitimacy from China and Russia, and not just those two, from many other countries as well, sort of regional powers. They no longer have the. They no longer have to subject themselves to liberal liberal ordering, such as signaling adherence to Western economic and political norms, agreeing to potentially intrusive verification monitors, mechanisms, and so on. Uh, when I was a student, we 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 talked a lot about Europeanization, for example. To go back to the European example, we talked about our Euro, the Europeanization process. It was probably the first lecture I ever attended. Uh, that that was, uh, I guess, in 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 this in this broader uh, topic that we're discussing in this in this course. So, um, in the 1990s, the Czech Republic and and Hungary. I'll give you just an example. Uh, were falling over themselves to host a Central European University, a new small liberal arts college funded by George Soros. Hungary won, and the university. Uh, got a beautiful building on Nagy Utka in Budapest. I took a summer course there in 2005. It was on globalization. It was just a glorious, glorious opportunity. Met wonderful people, learned a lot. Now, uh, CEU uh, is almost completely kicked out of Budapest. Uh, now has a new campus in Vienna, Austria. Michael Ignatiev, uh, one time uh, prime ministerial hopeful, leader of the Liberal Party, uh, is uh, the president. And he often gives interviews and tells stories uh, and puts them in a, in a broader context. Uh, it's, uh, you should listen to them. Uh, actually, it's, it, it is a fulcrum of, of what we're talking about in this class. Uh, the illiberal Hungarian government, led by Viktor Orban, simply did not want a liberal institution in its capital. 
Hungary suffered zero penalties for for this penalties from Brussels, from Washington, uh, and and you know other capitals uh, that matter. Uh, Hungary is still in the EU. It's getting millions and billions of European loans and grants, some of which are embezzled by Orban and his cronies. Yet he's talking about being friends with Mr. Putin of Russia and Mr. Erdogan of Turkey, modeling Hungary and Singapore, as he said. Um, so. The world is changing. The way I see it, the jury is out on how much of that American-led patronage monopoly uh, has been lost. Uh, exit from below dynamics pose a challenge to both the American system and liberal ordering, but sometimes in different ways. It's a crucial point, uh, and, and the authors of the textbook are very good on it. In some, in some ways, the former is doing better, partly because the American system was never terribly liberal. Uh, Bolsonaro Brazil does not like liberalism, but he also does not like China. So what does that tell you about the American system, right? Uh, it's a question to think about uh, in your responses uh, on our discussion board, perhaps. So uh, in the 1990s, again, recall that there was much talk about two concepts of sovereignty, uh, responsibility to protect R2P and so on. Ideas uh, that were occasionally implemented by military and non-military means. Uh, the rest of the world, I'm going to go and say this, uh, hated it, but could not do anything about it. The U.S., NATO, and its allies had no alternative. Now there was uh, not much you could do unless you had nuclear weapons to, to, say, um, to say, no, uh, we are sovereign and do not interfere in our domestic affairs. No, actually, that, that, was, uh, uh, that was subject to uh, negotiation. And, and, and by that, I don't mean diplomatic negotiation. The, US, the EU often slapped sanctions. Uh, so the authors of the textbook, Kuli and Exxon, on page 116, they give you a good case of Uzbekistan. In 2005, government cracked down on protesters, uh, and the EU uh, introduced sanctions. Moscow said, wait a second, Uzbekistan is sovereign, don't interfere. The Uzbek government then expelled the U.S. military, which had established an airbase in support of its operation in the war in Afghanistan. And they also expelled a number of Western NGOs. So Uzbekistan went under the Russian sphere of influence, if you like to say it. And then three years later, 2008, Tashkent, the capital, uh, did a deal with Washington. By this time, the U.S. committed itself to shutting up about human rights. And they also paid a lot of money, uh, much more in, uh, than before, in renting uh, the, uh, the real estate uh, for their military installation. So that's one example. Another example uh, is the EU and NATO enlargement, eastward enlargement. Uh, some of you who are from that part of the world or have taken courses about the EU will know everything about this process. It's one of the most successful foreign policies uh, in modern history. Here, change everything. We tell you to change and maybe there'll be a chance for you to accede to membership. Um, now see the example of Hungary, an actual member of the EU and NATO. The EU and NATO are toothless. Orban does whatever he wants. Uh, so Nixon and Cooley do not tell you why this is happening. It's a larger question, right? Uh, we, we have in IR and other fields, uh, nearby fields, uh, something called crisis theory. Um, people spend a lot of time debating on whether this is, uh, you know, what's happening in Hungary. Is it is a European crisis, a larger crisis, crisis of global capitalism? How do we think about it? Uh, so we're not going to get into it, but we can put forward some hypothesis based on, on, on what we just talked about. 1989, um, 
uh, that year, many Central and Eastern Europeans came to resent uh, being told to copy Western practices and values as if they were pupils in a class. The nationalist reaction came about not only because the Western liberal model discredited itself in the 2008 financial crisis, but also because it was never plausible that some people in Europe, uh, Central and Eastern, Southeastern Europeans, would behave exactly like West Germans did after 1945. And they basically gave up on their nationalism completely. Not, I should say, almost completely. It was a different kind of nationalism anyway. Um, so looking beyond Europe, we have many regional and cross-regional studies of illiberal peace uh, building. Uh, and they look at emerging donors like Russia and China who promote alternative norms and arrangements uh, to the Western-led consensus on liberal peace in post-conflict settings. These have helped governments to consolidate their control over the political system, monopolize economic resources and revenue streams, promote the rule of the dominant ethnic minority, let's say, and secure control over the domestic flow of information. So if you're a corrupt local politician or official, now you have options. You can play the Chinese card, the Russian card, you can play them against each other, maybe even talk to Iranians, Saudis, who knows. Uh, it's called good substitutions. You see it in the politics of military bases. Access denials and, evic and evictions, they happen when you find an alternative uh, patron. Kulian and Nixon, they talk a lot about Djibouti. Djibouti is a fabulous case. And those of you who are from that part of the world, maybe you should write about this uh, because we've never seen anything like this uh, in, in modern history. So many uh, countries having uh, military bases in, in essentially what is a very small uh, space um, uh, politically and, and otherwise, right? So... Uh, let's turn to chapter six, uh, which is about anti-order contention uh, by subnational, national, and transnational movements. This is especially important in the context of the American hegemonic system, since, as Cooley and Exxon argue, its combination of interdependence and liberal democratic institutions with their relatively open political systems uh, makes it asymmetrically vulnerable to illiberal movements and their sponsors. The authors stress... Uh, the right-wing movements, uh, but they also say they're not the only game in town. But they're a big game for three reasons. One, because they're rising. Two, because they expli explicitly oppose important aspects of international liberal ordering. Uh, three, because they are supported by the Kremlin. Think Sputnik Russia Today, Russian Twitter, Troll Farms, etc. This is uh, classic brokering wedging uh, activity. Uh, Moscow's efforts, especially over the last 15 years, uh, 20 years, showcase how a relatively economically weak power has, uh, with some real success, targeted the dense architectures and infrastructures within the liberal order's Euro-Atlantic cores. So I'm just using verbatim uh, words from the, from, the, from the textbook now. Um, architectures and infrastructures within, right? The chapter takes you through some constructivist literature, namely the work by Keck and Sickink, uh, good figure 6.1 on page 151, uh, tells you a little bit about, uh, about this literature, and also through some illustrations of the backlash against NGOs, pro-democracy activists, and some, uh, and some, other, uh, some, some other case studies. Actually, there's a very good case study in the, in the, in the chapter. It's on the, the World Congress of Families, WCF, uh, and, and the authors tell a story of how illiberal actors, social movements and groups across the United States and Eurasia have been networked and scaled up to generate transnational counter-ordering networks with global reach. Uh, and then you can 
you can you can check out figure 6.2 on page 152 to see this um, conceptually or visually so I have to say that I like the focus on the far right a lot uh, in a separate lecture segment for this week. I'll try to talk to about a project I'm doing with some of my colleagues here at the University of Ottawa that looks at the same thing. It's called the Global Right. You can learn more about this project on my website. So based on this research, I would, uh, I would, I would say that the first step towards meeting the challenge of the new right, um, that, or I should say the new new right in, in and we can talk about that in the discussion the forum and the difference between the new right and the new new right uh, well we have to understand uh, these differences understand their ideas strategies and organizations it's a big challenge assuming that all of you believe in liberal democracy rather than some kind of uh, illiberal or authoritarianism uh, it is a challenge right uh, not an opportunity <laughs> Uh, so when we started this project at the University of Ottawa, uh, this was long before Brexit and Trump and whatnot, and our hunch was that the growing prominence of populist nationalist groups and parties in country after country was not a coincidence. Their success could not be explained with reference only to domestic politics. We also suspected that while these various groups were fiercely proud of their national identity and distinctiveness, uh, they simultaneously had an, an international agenda and a vision uh, for a radically transformed world order, which is why we call the project the Global Right. Um, so here are five things uh, that I could tell you about our findings, and they're ongoing, and I think we're going to be spending uh, a lot of time thinking about how these connections work uh, to strengthen appeal within individual countries. Uh, there's, and we're obviously not the only one, after, I mean, uh, only ones after Trump, everyone's studying this stuff. So I'll say five things, um, might be a little long, but bear with me. Uh, so the contemporary new right or new new right or radical right is intellectually and politically very savvy. It is grounded in its own analysis of contemporary politics and international relations, has its own tradition of political thought and international political sociology. So one of the assigned readings for today discusses precisely this, and it's published in a journal called International Political uh, Sociology. Um, this tradition has been mobilized and renewed by an intellectual vanguard uh, with the aim of moving the discourse and organizational strategies of the radical right away from uh, you know, neo-Nazi nostalgia and skinhead subcultures, and it has provided alternative resources to interpret events, history, concepts, literature, film, and popular culture, right? Uh, so economic dislocation and cultural resentment, to name but two common explanations, do not themselves account for the rise of today's right. It's actually much more complicated than that. Uh, and equally important is the way these issues are framed within the discourse of the right and their mobilizing potential. Uh, so that's something to, to, to think about. Two, the radical right support for diversity intersects with several left-wing critiques of globalization and economic liberalization. This is actually a contentious point, but we think it's, it, it, it holds water. Uh, what radical right does is flips it around in a manner that portrays the defense of white people as legitimate as the defense of other identities and cultures. Uh, think of it as white identitarianism. This is a word the right uses. Uh, it's a question of culture and civilization rather than race, they say. Uh, consequently, those who make claims about racial subjugation are either playing identity politics, this is a term associated with the right, not the left, 
um, and they are themselves racist. So think of anti-white or reverse racism. So I teach an entire course on the grad level on, on, on race and racism, and there's often a debate of what this means. You know, can one be uh, a reverse racist? Uh, it's good that we become literate in this language uh, because, uh, yeah, because that's, that's part of what we're talking about here. And the challenge of the right uh, is, is, is trying to understand the strategies they use to position themselves as the defender of the people, their common sense and values, uh, the nation and free speech and so on. Right? They use the same strategy to drive attacks on multiculturalism, immigration, LGBTQ uh, rights, and so on. Third, the radical right is not a Euro-Atlantic phenomenon. The rise of white identitarianism has given new life to the radical right in South Africa. So the Afrikaner minority has reframed the previously discredited Afrikaner na nationalism uh, in civilizational and identitarian terms. Uh, this, is, this is coming from the work from my colleague Rita Abramson uh, here at, at uh, the University of Ottawa. Uh, and globally, the image of uh, the white South African minority at the southernmost tip of Africa circulates within radical right discourses as futuristic dystopia, an image of what is to come with a great uh, replacement of, uh, this is quote-unquote, grand replacement. Uh, of Europe's white civilization, again, quote-unquote, uh, by immigrants, Muslims, and whoever, right? Think of also the popularity of Rhodesian military gear among some Canadian military um, um, members. And this was a big story two years ago. I think that story was published on the Ricochet by Aaron Cedar and others, uh, won an award for a uh, journalistic award. Uh, they found that you know members of the of the Canadian military were were wearing Rhodesian uh, uniforms. Now you have to understand exactly this uh, in order to to be alarmed as as the, the Canadian armed forces are about this kind of stuff. Four. Uh, point number four, to understand and counter the contemporary right, we need to understand its newness. We need to abandon the old categories of fascism and fascist internationalism while remaining conscious of historical lineages and possible continuities. Uh, crucially, a non-fascist global right is much harder to counter uh, than a movement that carries the historical legacy of the swastika and the Holocaust. That's obvious, right? Uh, so opponents of fascism know how to deal with the, uh, with the latter, but not so much the former, right? Uh, populism is too vague a term. Um, the radical right challenges liberal democracy in much more authoritarian and, and profound ways. It aims to break the link between democracy and liberalism, accentuate the importance of charismatic leadership, and de depreciate uh, parliamentary democracy and human rights. It's not just populism that we're talking about here. Author authoritarian populism, to use a term coined by a British sociologist Stuart Hall, is perhaps better. Final point. While many dismiss the radicals' right electoral appeal as a temporary protest vote, uh, believing and hoping that eventually its supporters will come to its senses, we think that this optimism is unwarranted. Uh, today's radical rights movements present a fundamental challenge, and, and that's why we need to think about it very hard. And that's why I like the textbook for its focus on the radical right, as opposed to some kind of radical left-wing movements. Uh, but, you know, this is not to say that you shouldn't uh, talk about both or, 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 or the left in your 
uh, in your responses uh, to these week, this week's uh, discussions. Speaking of which, let me give you some questions to think about. Uh, first, let's start with chapter five. Where in the world does China have its overseas military bases? So the textbook's very good uh, at, at outlining and giving you an uh, answer to this question, but there could be more. Um, so update uh, the textbook there, if you like. And what does that tell you, if anything, about China's long-term strategy? Next, uh, what is multipolar populism that Cooley and Exxon are talking about? They mention it in the book on pages 132, 133. And they also talk about it in their foreign policy article from this year, 2020. Uh, they talk about Prime Minister Viktor Orban, uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, and President Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines. What do they have in common? And why does Trump like these guys? That could be one question for you to answer in the discussion uh, forum. Next. What are the main swing states today, geopolitically speaking? The textbook tells you a little bit about the governments of countries such as Ecuador, Tajikistan. Oh, you heard about Uzbekistan, Sri Lanka, Djibouti. You know about Hungary, uh, Italy, Serbia. Would you add more to this list? Look for leaders who are successfully levering, leveraging the emergence of alternative patrons. So not just Russia and China, but also Turkey, uh, Iran, uh, the Saudis. And how are they doing this? Uh, and are they successful at pushing back against the conditions sought by uh, Western donors, let's say? What are some of the interesting cases, right? So what, or, or, you know, think of it this way. What are, what are some of the awkward allies uh, of the United States in the world right now, right? Who are the allies from hell? Uh, to, use, uh, to use the title of a book about, about Pakistan. <laughs> so, um, chapter six now. Notice that it's very heavy on Russia. So those of you who, uh, who have some expertise in this area, interest in this area, will have a great time thinking about the authors' claims, and, and you'll love responding to them on the discussion board, I'm sure, uh, especially uh, those of you who are interested in social media and cyber com campaigns, uh, which Cooley and Nexon argue is part of a more integrated and broader Russian national strategy, one that aims to reassert state control over information spaces, deemed vital to state sovereignty and security. So, uh, what's the story here? Does this make sense to you? Is Russia the problem or is liberal democratic openness uh, the problem? If it's both, in what proportion? And related, and I, let this be the final question uh, that, that I'm suggesting to you. How do we know when an anti-order subnational and transnational uh, units are instruments of great powers. How do we know that when we see it? Maybe they have their own interests. Maybe they are led by political chancers who are fighting for survival uh, and who want us to think that uh, they are in cahoots with Moscow or Beijing or whoever. Um, so how do we know that? So that's it for now. Take care of yourself uh, and each other and talk to you soon next week. That is. Thanks very much.